because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome former Amherst College head coach and the first ever Division III coach enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame, David Hickson, to the Basketball Podcast. David was the head men's basketball coach at Amherst College for 42 years and was named as one of the 12 inductees in the Hall of Fame class of 2023. Before retiring in 2020, Hickson racked up 826 wins and became just the third coach in NCAA Division III men's college basketball history to surpass the 800-win mark when he did it in 2018. Hickson coached the Amherst College team to two NCAA Division III national championships, seven Final Four appearances, and 20 Division III national tournaments. Hickson was twice named Division III Coach of the Year, the national title years of 2007 and 2013 by the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Great to be here. Well, uh, knew about you uh, before and know a lot more about you now, and we are just talking off air. What, a, what an incredible achievement. The Basketball Hall of Fame, how does that feel? It's unbelievable. It, uh, you know, I, I keep I keep going back and, you know, I'm watching like everybody else. I'm watching the NBA right now. And I see all these great players and see so many that, you know, would love to be in the Hall of Fame and aren't in the Hall of Fame at this point in time. And just the, uh, you know, the notoriety of the people that I'm around now. I mean, can you can you actually say D Wade and and uh, Dave Hickson in the same breath? And uh, you know, you can, if you stop and think about it, and that's what the committee did that voted, but certainly the notoriety and, and those guys are household names. And, and I haven't been, I, you know, certainly with my group, I'm well known, but uh, not on a national level or international level like those guys are. So it's really cool. I have no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, speaking for small college coaches or, you know, we can say division three, but there's a lot of coaches around the world that are outstanding at their level. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have phrased it to me that this is a win for all of the smaller coaches at smaller schools that don't necessarily get the recognition they deserve. Do you feel a little bit about that as well? I do. I think that uh, for sure it's a win. I don't know exactly where it goes. And I think that, you, you know, the, the whole process is a pretty intense process and it starts out with you having to be nominated. Uh, and uh, Steve Moore out at Wooster, who is a phenomenal coach and a phenomenal record, uh, had been nominated twice before, one the year before me and once last year with me. He was not nominated this year. And so getting nominated is the first step. And so 37 people were nominated this year. And then it goes to a committee of nine called the North American Committee. And then there's a separate women's committee. But the the North American committee, uh, and you have to get seven, at least seven votes to move forward to be a finalist. And then uh, you you go, you have to get 18 out of 24 and the, la the last voting. And so uh, it's a process and they do it right. They present you, they present your resume. But, you know, I don't really know what triggers uh, somebody being nominated. I mean, I think Steve was a very worthy candidate. 
to be nominated. Now it's up to the committee, not up to me after that. And I think I've said to people, I think I had, it was the right place at the right time with the right resume. And uh, I think when you add all those together, the committee liked it. I think they were trying to open the hall up a little bit from just being an NBA Hall of Fame, which it's, people are, were starting to think it was. And so, I mean, there are a, a tremendous amount of terrific coaches out there. And, and it goes all the way back into the high school level. I mean, some of the best coaches that I've known are high school coaches because they have limited facilities, limited resource, and, and they get what they get. You know, not so much to, or today, now that every, the preps are taking all their kids from them. But uh, before, you know, you, you, you waited, to, you're working with your seventh and eighth graders or running a youth program so that the fruit would be born when they became freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And then you hoped a really good player might move into town. But if they didn't, you know, you were stuck with what you had. And some of these guys are just phenomenal. So there are a, a ton of great coaches out there. I do think this was a win in quotes for the little guy though. Well, I love that. And uh, your resume speaks for itself. And I think 42 years of uh, excellence probably speaks a lot as well. So uh, we're going to use you as a resource to be able to help us with our coaching. So let's start with maybe that first question around sustaining excellence and sustaining success and sustaining a program over that long a period of time. Can you give us some advice in terms of some of the best practices that helped you sustain that success? Right. Well, I and all of these answers are going to intertwine a little bit. When I looked at your questions, I thought like, wow, you know, they're just, this could just be a monologue for an hour. I won't do that to you uh, and, and end up covering all of them. But I think that, uh, you know, sort of the sustained commitment uh, along those same lines of sustained energy, uh, sustained focus. In other words, so sustained is the common theme there. And that very often when you get started, you know, your, your guns are blazing, you, you, you work really hard, and then you, then you win a championship or something, and then you back off a little bit and think that you're in cruise, you can't be in cruise control. You have to continually find ways to get better. Uh, you have to continually find ways, to, you know, to reach your players, to understand the younger players as they come through. Uh, I'm not going to go as far as to say listen to their music, but the uh, you, <laughs> you definitely want to... Uh, constantly work at making sure that you're that you're changing and that you're doing the best things that you can do you can't you can't use the same uh, footprint that you used 10 years ago and if you do then you're probably going to fall short uh, there are certain things that you you never change uh, but you know you need to change certain things too and 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 adjust and uh, there was a long time ago someone wrote an article in the NABC bulletin uh, which talked, it was about me, but it talked about how over, oh, I don't know, 15 year span, I'd run four different types of offenses, you know, because we don't, we don't get the kids that we want necessarily at my type of school, or if you're at a high school or something like that, you can't go out and say, look, I want a seven footer in the middle, uh, unless that seven footer has 14, 50 on his boards, you know, and, and straight A's. So you have to adjust all the time. And, uh, uh, I have loved that part of it. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of pieces to this answer that I think I'll touch on later as you go through some of your questions. But uh, yeah, it's got to be a sustaining of focus, energy, uh, commitment uh, to being excellent. And being excellent is not easy. It's not easy and uh, great stuff in terms of that. And you mentioned something that 
you know, maybe there's some things that haven't changed over that time. What would be one of those things? Well, I, I think for me, one of the most important things, and I think maybe I've presented it a little bit differently, mm -hmm. uh, but I think, you know, you need to be firm with your players. There are certain things, whether it's, you, you know, you've developed um, a program and a culture and kids have to buy into that culture. And, and, you know, you listen to them, you talk to them. If they say, well, coach, you know, we think, I think that, you know, this should, you should ease up a little bit on that or something like that. You can have a discussion on those things, but there are a lot of things uh, that stay true. I mean, I, I think that, you know, your hard work, your commitment to on the court and in the classroom and in a social situation, uh, you know, we've, we've created this program and you have to buy into that a little bit. And if you're outside those lines on that, we have to rope you back in a little bit. And I think when kids do that, I, so I think freshmen, you know, have traditionally not played a lot for me when they come to Amherst. Of course, nowadays they might jump in the transfer portal. I don't know. But, uh, but back in the day, they didn't do that. You know, kids that came to a place like Amherst stayed. And, you know, it was hard because they had to change. Their high school was different. They were probably the kingfish and, uh, you know, had a lot of situations that people went to them. And all of a sudden, they're, they're a freshman all over again. I always tell people the hardest thing in life is to be a freshman again. But remember this, that when you're a freshman under me, you will be a freshman five, six, seven, eight years, 10 years later in, in a job setting. Remember what you learned from being a freshman under me. And I promise you, it will help you be a freshman again. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that they have to, you create a culture and they have to buy into that culture. And that's hard for kids. And all these kids that you recruit have egos. I mean, this, you know, they, that's why they're good. And so it's, it's, you know, you have to sometimes break them down a little bit to build them up. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you referenced a little bit in uh, talking about uh, some of the things that you love. And I know you shared this note with me about practice. And we're going to talk a little bit about practice throughout this podcast. But uh, one of the things that I love that you said is that you love problem solving. And that is what is such a beautiful part of practice, isn't it? It is a hundred percent. And uh, again, I don't want to scatter all over the place. I'm going to try and be direct more toward your question. You can but, go wherever you go, coach. This is yeah. the point. Well, so I, I think that, you know, for me, practice was two things. It was all this problem solving, and I'll talk about that in a second. But also, you know, you you indicated uh, this uh, this whole identification and trying to figure out how to deal with mental health. And for me personally, like, like, I don't think you can deal with other people's mental health when you're having mental health issues yourself. And so for me, like, I would always get down to practice about 45 minutes early. And in Division Three, you got a lot of different hats you have to wear. But I'd try and shut down as often as I could to get down as early as I could. And kids knew that. And so kids would come in earlier. And it may be they're coming in early to work on some offensive move. It may be they're coming in early. And this is the important piece to talk to you, to to try to, they're not, they're uncomfortable. They're not maybe as happy as they should be. They don't understand why uh, they're not playing. They don't understand this and that. And so uh, I call that weeding and I, I stole this and I wish I could credit the guy, uh, but it was a thousand years ago. I stole it from a football coach who talked about that he used to do this and he'd walk around and talk to the different kids before practice. And 
particularly kids that he had noticed body language wasn't good or they seemed down a little bit. You don't know if it's their family. You don't know if somebody's sick. You know, you don't know if they're struggling with a girlfriend, if they're struggling in, in school or they're struggling with you. But you get down there early and make yourself available. And, and again, you might work on a skill, but I'd love to have my assistants get down there and work on the skill stuff. And then I could walk around and check guys out and find out what was going on. So the weeding part is that if you don't, I don't know if you're a gardener, but if you don't weed your garden once in a while, like if not every day, once a week, then you're going to, your, your weed buildup is going to take the garden over. And that's, that's how it happens with attitudes. I mean, so uh, for me, and then, and then because I, I grow, I change. Uh, I was down at Home Depot one day and I was buying some stuff for my lawn and I saw they had a bag of weed and feed. And it just struck me then down at Home Depot. I thought like, that's what I'm missing. I'm weeding, but maybe I'm not feeding enough. In other words, that's, that's the more mature coach, the more empathetic coach that I grew into. Whereas weeding before, I was, I was going after problems as opposed to feeding too. And feeding is, you know, a lot of positive input. So, you know, you get with a kid and you talk to him and, and it may not be the first day that he opens up to you, but the more your players end up opening up to you and then you back to them or vice versa, uh, the better relationships you're going to have, the stronger team chemistry you're going to have uh, and the happier career they're going to have and, and onward after that. So the weed and feed concept has always been a big thing for me. And I think most of my guys that have gone into coaching have taken that with them because I do think it's invaluable. And the first part of that, when I used to go down early, uh, my mental health to get out of the office and stop doing, I hate to say this, but dealing with administrators and making administration type decisions and get my head into basketball, which is what I, that was my passion. That's what I really loved. And, and to give myself some space of 45 minutes. And if no one showed up, guess what? I was I was taking care of my mental health down there, just breathing in the air of the gymnasium, you know, looking up at some of the banners that we had won, thinking about past players. And all of a sudden, you know, light would go off and say, hey, you got another kid just like that kid. Remember what you did to help that kid? And this you could do it with this kid. So I think the whole mental health piece for a coach is to find that time when you can get, you know, by yourself and then, you know, do important things with your players. I love that. That phrasing, weed and feed is tremendous. And uh, that advice as well, I hope coaches will note that because I do know some of the most challenging practices for me as a coach were the ones where I brought things onto the court that had nothing to do with the players and being a small college coach as well. Most of it had to do with administrators. So I totally get that coach. So getting that kind of that, that, uh, that time of sanity before practice, that's just great advice for all coaches and uh, wonderful. And you did share with me as well this concept that uh, practice is not a game. Um, so can you expand on that a little bit? <laughs> well, actually, that, you know, I've been waiting my whole life since Allen Iverson to say that. And so when I spoke out in Fort Wayne, uh, that's how I started. I said, guys, today we're going to talk about practice, not a game, not a game. We're going to talk about practice. but. Uh, there's a huge difference and and you know they're connected because if you don't have good practices or do good things in your practice if you don't practice with a purpose uh the key word now i guess is uh you need to be intentional in how you practice then you won't have good games you and you shouldn't expect good games uh, anything that happens is going to be random if you don't if you don't do the right things in practice so for me and this is why I like to talk about practice, because it's, it's not talked about enough. 
you know, you could have all the out of bounds plays, last second plays, you know, this offense, that offense, how to play man defense, all the stuff that you want to do. But if, if you don't do it with some intentionality that you could present it in a practice setting the right way and figure out when it's catching and when it's not catching into the kids, uh, you might as well do it for not. Uh, I'll just say one quick story. I, I, I was, uh, my senior year in college, I practiced taught. I was a math guy. And I went over to the local high school and I practiced taught mathematics. And I wrote up my lesson plan. I showed it to my head guy and he looked at me and he said, eh, okay, let's see what happens, right? Bell rings. I'm up there. I went through my practice, uh, my, uh, my classroom practice plan, I guess you'd call it. And uh, right up until the end, the bell goes off when I said my last word. I turned around to myself and I said, you are really good. You know, you are really good. Guess what? The next day, those kids didn't understand 80% of what I talked about, right? It, it was about me, not about them. And I learned that, right? And so I had to go all the way back. Now I got to go all the way back and do that one all over again. And all my master teacher did was smile and say, well, you learned one of the biggest lessons today. You know, it's got to be about the kids, not about you. And that was a great pace for you. You understood everything you said. They didn't understand anything you said. So, uh, yeah, it, it, practice is just so important. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the concept that practice is not a coaching clinic, right? Like if the way that you present to coaches is different the way that you present to players, or it should be, right? That's right. Absolutely, 100%. And, and, and you have to have them do it. And you'll see one of the things at the very end of my practice plan, when we scrimmage, a lot of times we'll scrimmage, I call it possession and go. And, you know, a lot of guys will just scrimmage. And for me, the thing about possession and go, I've taught something during practice that I want to rehearse and rehearse. And so when we do possession and go, you get the ball and you get to run what we were working on. Okay. And as long as you score, you keep the ball. So now you reinforce, you're running it again. You're running it again. Now, if I steal the ball, rebound the ball, whatever it is, turn you over and go the other way. My fast break is a, is a, is a free possession. So I get to run the court, hopefully learn how to fast break a little bit. And then I get the ball and I get to rehearse the stuff we did as long as I can score or keep possession because of a foul or something like that. So what possession and go does is rather than having random, you know, fast breaks, maybe you're running the set that you taught today. Now we're guaranteed to run that set at least once. But if they're running it well, maybe three, four, five times before the ball goes the other way. And I always felt that was a great, great way to teach and to reinforce the stuff that we'd put in that day. I love it. Um, possession and go. I already, I used to call it half court, full court. And the one thing that also it allows you to do is when you want to, it allows you to work on inbound from realistic situations because you're playing. Okay. So basically, yeah. essentially, coach, just explain it to coaches. If you score, you get to keep the ball. Do they stay in the half court or do they go in the full court to be able to keep the ball? So we stay in the half court and we run because so well, you, score, you get you know, to stay in the half court. Yeah, we stay in yeah. the half court. It's something that we've worked on that day. And it might be that we've also worked on the side out of bounds or an out of bounds underneath. So we may do that in addition to, to that. Uh, and, you know, again, as a coach, you can't totally be bound by that, by being too rigid. And so occasionally I'd call a foul so that the team that wasn't doing very well would get the ball back again or whatever, you know, so that they would, I said, go, take it out of bounds underneath. Uh, 
so that we could work on something else that we did. So, you know, you, as a coach, you have to sort of see what's going on. Again, be intentional about what you're trying to do and, and what you're trying to teach and how you're teaching it. And, uh, you know, I you know, I give the ball to the kid out of bounds because we're working on an out of bounds plan underneath. They get an extra possession. Great. And, you know, my guys get so competitive. I'll say, guys, you'll get an extra possession down the other end. Relax. <laughs> That's so funny. You can always find a way to get a team another rep as a coach. That's beautiful. And uh, so then uh, if there's no score, keep playing until there's a score. And then whoever scores gets the ball again in the half court. Yeah. So, if I, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and that's telling me maybe I didn't do a very good job putting in my my new offensive set if we're not scoring at all, if it just keeps <laughs> going up and down. But, yeah, so if we don't score, they take the ball. They get a free possession. They're going to run as fast as they can. We're going to try to work on on getting the best shot we can as early as we can on, on fast break, secondary break, early offense, whatever you call it. Uh, and then I'm, and then that team that just ran that fast break is going to get the ball back again in the half court, whether it's taking the ball out of bounds underneath on the side or just take it at half court and run the set that we've worked on uh, un, until they miss. If they make or there's a foul or something, they get it back again. But then if they just shoot and miss, ball goes the other way. And now they're going to have the opportunity. But hopefully there's more repetition in that than just a scrimmage uh, because sometimes scrimmages, particularly late in the practice, you know, kids are a little fatigued uh, and it becomes just an up and down. And, and there's a time for that conditioning wise, there's a time for that. And so we break it up and we'll do some of that, but the repetition and teaching I think is really important. Absolutely. And I love it. And it's providing a little bit of structure. So you make sure that you're getting the coaching interventions you want. The other great thing about it, which uh, coaches that listen to the podcast know I value five on five, but, the part I really value about any type of game-based play is obviously there's two-way teaching opportunities. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that, the value of playing these type of situations? And I know you've referenced around three, four, and four different things within your practice. It's two-way teaching that exists in these uh, type of uh, small-sided games, isn't it? Right. And I have to tell you that um, work at getting a good assistant and work at or two and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And so it's not like you could say, yeah, well, you're at college, you get this and that. Well, no, we had a lot of guys that were going to grad school that would sprint over from the, we're lucky, the University of Massachusetts is right there. And they would be taking their, their sport management courses, their MBA courses. They'd get there 15 minutes before, I'd hand them a sheet, any questions about whatever. But, but I would take my time, the hours that I could spend with them prior or even after for the next day to have good assistance because our kids basically felt they were being coached both ways. So in other words, I'd have one of my assistants who, who got to be really good and, and it engages your assistants. It makes them want to get better because you're giving them basically half the, half the team. So in other words, they're down there and, and somebody's going to be pissed off. Like I'm going to be really happy if we score, he's going to be really pissed off because we, we got scored on. So in other words, there's, there's this competitive action going on that, it's like the block charge, like nobody's ever happy, right? Like, so we'd have practices sometimes where, you know, if he was on his team to play better defense and they did and they were stopping us, I was not happy, right? And if I was scoring left and right and his team wasn't something, he was not happy. And so the kids are getting constant push, feedback, uh, teaching. Um, and, you know, you learn to work off each other. And I was, you can't keep stopping the thing. And him to blow his whistle and come out and give a five-minute lecture. No, that's not what we do. But to have a good assistant, and they may not be good when you first get them, but 
if, if you work with them, you know, if you engage them, we, what we used to do every day, we'd, well, not every day, but, but toward the end of the season, playoff time, we'd want to put in a new out of bounds play, right? Out of bounds underneath, out of bounds on the side. And so I'd say to my assistant, okay, look, tomorrow we're going to put in an out of bounds play. I've already got mine. You get yours, right? And we're fortunate in our gym again, where we have like two courts, there's a screen between the two courts and we'd send his team over behind the, the secret curtain, we called it. And they'd come over and we'd be competitive against each other running our out-of-bounds plays. And I have to tell you, there were times when I took their out-of-bounds play over mine and we didn't use mine. We used theirs. And I think when you do that with your assistants and they really feel a, a part of it and feel engaged in it, uh, they're just better. And they become better coaches naturally. But at that time, coaching your team, they become more valuable. I love that. That's such a great, great advice to all coaches. And uh, I've been the assistant who has just stood there and not been involved. And I've been a part of a coaching staff where this, I, as an assistant, I was very involved. And you yeah. can imagine which one was better, of course. <laughs> uh, and again, it's just that, especially, um, you know, you mentioned the young assistants. They j it's just really hard to get opportunities to coach if you're not yeah. giving them those opportunities. And how do you learn? You have to coach. So well, I love that. I have to tell you, even at my summer camp, you know, we'd have these local guys and they'd be really young, still in college. And of course, they had all the answers. And I get that. I was there, too. And uh, so I would always say, guys, listen, so your assignment and they'd look at me like assignment. And I'd say, yeah, you have an assignment here. Your assignment is is to do it out of bounds, play underneath or out of bounds, play on the side. OK, draw it up. I said, I hope I haven't seen it already. Don't go to a book. In other words, I want you to use your basketball mind and create an out-of-bounds play, thinking it through why it works, right? And I'd send them home. And the next day after camp got over, we'd get in a room and we'd have a chalkboard, chalkboards back then, whiteboards, whatever. And we'd have a guy go up and present his out-of-bounds play. And then, you know, typically I'd go up and play defense on it. And usually the first time through, most of them, they're pretty bad. <laughs> they're pretty bad they're pretty defendable right and so they started to think along those terms so the next time we did an assignment like that this time they would play defense against their offense too as opposed to just doing offense and with nobody there that you're always going to score right and so i even did that at my summer camp i think the more you engage young people and and being a part of it the better they're going to be that's great stuff. And I imagine with your staff, it was similar to mine in the sense you referenced not having necessarily always full-time staff or people that could be available all the time. And part of that experience was was sometimes good. But one of the challenges is that your assistants aren't around your players as much as you are as a right. full-time staff member. Can you talk a little bit about creating that balance and then obviously helping your assistants because you have more time to build relationships than your assistants? Right. Well, you know, so we we talk uh, a lot about that. And when they do get there, there are plenty of times, whether a kid, you know, if you're playing even five on five, uh, you know, you probably have four kids sitting and there's somebody over there making sure that they're understanding what's going on in the court. But the purpose is dual, not just making sure they're paying attention and learning even while they're out, but also so that you can have that communication with them and develop some sort of relationship with them. And then I, I think some of the the other end of practice, you know, as kids get ready to go and they get they got to get to dinner. I mean, the good news is our school 
made dinner and later so our kids didn't get the last slice of the pie every night. And so, you know, again, kids, certain kids would hang around and certain assistants would take a kid off to the side and work with him. And he wasn't just working on his free throw. He was working on this whole weed and feed and, and relationship and all that stuff. And so there's, I think there's time for them to do that. Uh, and, you know, some kids are busy and others, but it, but it always worked for us. The kids had time to do it. And, and there were a lot of times when I felt that my assistant coaches had, I don't want to say better relationships, but naturally because they were younger, different relationships than I could or should have. Right. And so I get that and I let that go. I love it. And, uh, we, they come back and we talk a lot about what went down, but, um, you know, it, it, they're different. It, it, the 24 and 25 and 26 year olds talking to 18 to 22 is better than, or not better again, different than a 65 year old guy. So it's all good. All good. I love that. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about immersionvideos.com. Have you checked out immersionvideos.com? Watch a NATO's practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama. Or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. Immersionvideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to immersionvideos.com and check it out today. You referenced uh, getting down to practice, if you could, 45 minutes early for individual work, weed and feed. And then you like to start with a brief talk, which I love that you referenced as seldom brief. So talk to us a little bit. What goes on in this brief talk, coach? <laughs> well, you know, all sorts of things. I, I uh, again, sometimes it is brief, but my my players always laugh, you know, that I've always not my players. The coaches all laugh that I always write brief, brief talk. And, you know, the. It, there may be an opportunity to celebrate somebody's success. They just got player of the week or something like that. Uh, there might be a chance, you know, just to, to get the kids laughing a bit. So Luke Flakersey, who's at Rochester, uh, play, uh, played at, um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to, where's the place where they shoot the ball all the time and, and shoot threes and score like crazy? Uh, Grinnell. Grinnell. So he's in the Grinnell system. And so I'd start my practice. I'd go over. I said, guys, I have some good news and bad news. And they'd all look at me and I'd say, well, the good news is that Grinnell scored 125 points last night. The bad news is they gave up 140. And Luke used to hate when I would do that, but the kids all loved it. Um, so, you know, we may talk about that. We may, maybe there's something going on on campus that's important. Um, before we left for Thanksgiving, we always talk about, you know, giving thanks because Kids don't thank their parents enough. They think they do, but they don't. Uh, there might be a little lesson in all of that stuff. There might be something going on, on campus. Maybe there's a celebration of Martin Luther King Day or, or or some other thing that, you know, I think that they need to know and think about, about respect for each other and, you know, respect for other people on the campus. It just, there's, there's and that's why it goes more than five minutes usually. I will tell you the funniest uh, five minute one that I ever had though, I'm standing in there and we're getting ready to go to playoffs and I'm sort of walking in a circle and talking and getting eye contact with each kid. And it's just light stuff because we're getting ready for the tournament. And uh, I get this six, nine freshman, he's a little goofy and uh, he's not paying attention. He's looking up into the rafters. He's looking around like this and 
with his mouth agape and everything else. So I said, hey, James. I said, what are you looking at? What are you doing? And he goes like this. He points and he goes, coach, look, a butterfly. So the whole team looks up and up flying above us is a butterfly. So I don't know why I did this. It scares me a little bit. I stood in the, I walked to the middle of the circle and I put my hand up with an open palm above my head. I said, guys, watch this. The butterfly came down and landed on my hand. Come on. Yep. Those guys listened to every word I said from there on in. They thought we can't mess with this guy. That's awesome. You're like a Jedi. <laughs> Unbelievable. So it is, it's, it's for whatever you want. You know, I learned it from a guy who was my AD who was a Brit, a Brit and he was a soccer coach. And unfortunately I used to joke with him all the time because he'd go a half hour. And I'd say, Pete, I'd be giving him this saying like, you know, so the players couldn't see me, but come on, we got to go with practice. So I'm somewhere in the between there. I'm, I'm a, usually a five to 10 minute guy. That's great stuff. And uh, you, you mentioned from there, obviously, uh, getting into the kind of the bulk of the practice. But one thing before we get there is that I, I love that you referenced that it's okay to have a laugh too, right? And you referenced the butterfly yeah. story and the different part of it. But Talk a little bit, because I think it's, again, something that's under talked about is the value of humor and smiling and having a, a positive outlook as a coach, but all these things that shine for your players. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think there's there's different times for everything. But but if you have players what smiling, laughing, positive attitude going into a practice, they're just going to have a better practice. I mean, there were times, I suppose, when I went in and chewed because they deserve to be chewed. And we started right out doing some really physical, aggressive stuff that, because we needed to, but that's sort of few and far between. I think you have to save those moments for when you need them. And if you're going to grind every day, you know, I, I can think back and it's a long time ago, but I can think back to times when I was getting ready to practice as a player. And it was sort of like, ah, again, we're going to do this again. I mean, and so if you get people leaving the circle with a positive attitude and on an up note, whether they're smiling, laughing, joking, making fun of each other a little bit, uh, making fun of me a little bit. The, uh, you know, I just think it goes a long way. And and, and you'll see it turns. I mean, you, you get going and, and you, now you're getting loose, easy to get loose. And then you start to, you know, screw down a little bit and focus in when you get to the stuff that you need to focus in on. But good way to start the practice for sure. Absolutely. And the stuff you need to focus in on, uh, you reference, obviously, being very intentional in your drills. Can you talk to us about how you approach this intentionality? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, that, you know, you you can't come down to practice as you look at my practice plan. Like it would probably take me if we went through my practice plan, it would take us a couple hours. Off the court, on the court, it can only take you, you know, your, your hour or whatever. But but off the court, you know, you've got to go through and you have to understand what you're teaching 100 percent. And you have to understand and anticipate questions that may happen that you have to have answers for ahead of time. One hundred percent as much as you can. And uh, I just think that that uh, if you haven't done that and you get in there and you're winging it a bit. Well, you get what winging does. <laughs> you know, you'll get you'll get winged or something. I don't know. You just. It, you're going to end up stuck someplace. I just think you got to be ready to go. You got to be be prepared 100% to present what you're presenting because if you don't, you waste time. Uh, 
you blur the lines. In other words, I think you confuse kids. You need to know exactly how you want to do what you want to do and then demand that of the players and tell them why they're right, why they're wrong. And again, the, you know, there are times when you want to keep things light. We, we run this offense, which uh, zone offense, which uh, I sort of invented. I don't think anything has been invented, but I, I had an assistant whose dad was a great coach up at Bowdoin College. And he ran the last great matchup that I had seen at our level. And, and he's one of the few guys that has really run it well. His son came to work for me and I said, look, I'm going to ask you about everything, but I'm never going to ask you to help me against your dad. And he looked at me and he said, hey, I work for you now. <laughs> I, I thought, all right, then let's roll up our sleeves. So what we did was we put together uh, a zone offense called cutters, which I think works against everything, but it's wonderful against a matchup. It's wonderful you don't, if you don't quite know what they're doing. And uh, the first, when the cutter first goes through, he cuts to the rim and then he goes one way or the other. And, and I used to take great joy in putting it in and all the upperclassmen would just be smiling. And I'd put a freshman out there and say, okay, now you go to the rim, which way do you go? And the kid would look at me and they don't want to be wrong. And the kid would go, um, I want to go that way. And I'd say, no, actually you want to go that way. It, that'd always be wrong, right? And yeah. so the kid, you know, and the upperclassmen are going like, here's coach, go doing his thing again, right? <laughs> and I'd send another guy through. I said, so which way are you going to go? Now he'd go, I want to go that way. I said, no, actually, you want to go this way. And then I say, guys, it doesn't make any difference. That's the great beauty of this offense. You can go either way. And then I give him, how about going this way? And I'd, you know, do the old scarecrow thing. And so we'd laugh too. But but the intentionality was to prove to them, make the point. You can go either way you want to go. There's not a right and a wrong necessarily in that offense. And so, uh, but again, back to your humor thing too, you can mix mix those things up. Did you value possibilities within offensive sequences or offensive actions as well? Or was that just unique to your uh, zone concept? So, so I think uh, one of the best compliments that I've had was from John Feinstein, mm -hmm. who when we won the championship in 2013, he had, it, it was great because it was on the Sunday in between the Division One stuff. And so there were a lot of people that were down there for the Division One tournament that took the Sunday to come over and watch the Division Three and Division Two championship. And so Feinstein sought me out at the end of the game. And he said to me, Coach, I absolutely love your team. He said, but I got to tell you, I got to ask you a question. He said, you guys came down the court and they'd call like fist. But they didn't always do the same thing. Like, tell me about that. I said, well, because they're reading each other. You know, this is when you get to the ultimate, to the top of the mountain and and offense and defense, you're just reading each other and you're making decisions based off each other. And rather than running something that's just this rote learning, this guy goes here, this guy goes here, this guy goes here, you read. And so that team got so good at reading each other, literally would come down and would start in fists and three times in a row, they'd be unrecognizable as the same play. But it was just people. So the possibilities that open up and, and, you know, we used to, one of the things I always loved and my assistants would love it is that we'd sit in the office and say, look, we know that this is what this team's going to do against this set. Okay. Let's put a wrinkle in. And we'd sit there and twist and turn until we put a wrinkle. And next thing you know, we'd put an alley-oop dunk out of it and it would work. And when, we were, when it worked in a game and you look at each other and go like, you know, that's yours, you know? So, uh, yeah, possibilities, possibilities. The more your kids can understand 
and run possibilities off set plays, the better you're going to be. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on uh, rote memory and uh, where that fits in, because, uh, you know, what we share at Basketball Immersion is obviously a little bit of evidence-based concepts around uh, random and variable practice and uh, interweaving rather than this traditional coaching of just constant memorization and repeating. And what you just described in offense is that you provided them a structure or a template from which to be free. And But you don't always start there, do you? So talk to us a little bit about rote memory and then avoiding it and including it or how you approach that from your philosophy. Right. So it's interesting. I Part of the Division Three, the Division Three road is I coached soccer for 23 years as an assistant and a little bit as a head coach. And I coached with a Brit and I, I coached with a, uh, an African and then I coached the women for a while. And the Brit was very, very disciplined, you know, do it this way, do that. The African fellow was much more sort of freedom based and and we struggled and we really struggled uh, with that system. Our kids struggled with that system. And I remember having a discussion with him and saying, coach, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that you need to have a core, you know, of whether it's rote learning, discipline, whatever it is. In other words, you need to have a core and then freedom can flourish off that beautifully. I said, if it's freedom from the get go, it's chaos. And that's what we were doing. We were creating chaos out there for ourselves as much as for the other people. So every now and then we'd get a great goal and everybody would be happy. But most of the time we're making a lot of mistakes because you didn't know where the other guy was going to go. You have to, I do think there's such a, a, a critical piece, call it rote learning, whatever you want to call it, but putting in a template and be very rigid with them until they understand that. Once they understand that, that's where the freedom starts to grow. Now you can let exceptions. If you're always going to have exceptions, then you don't have anything. And so the exceptions have to grow off those other pieces that you've put in place. And then it flourishes. I mean, then kids have the confidence to know where everybody's going to be at this point in time so they can do something different. So. Love that explanation. That's absolutely that structure to unstructured type of moment. And uh, coach, how did you fit shooting into practice? It's such an important part of the game nowadays. How did you incorporate shooting into practice? Yeah, so we made sure, number one, that they were loose, they were sweating. They had done other stuff first so that, you know, they got the feel of the ball. We wanted them in a game type feel that they were ready to go. And then what we did typically in the first half of practice, we we would do uh, repetitive shooting. In other words, I, I don't think you can always do competitive shooting. Now, we did competitive shooting in the second half because I think that's important. And I think you have to shoot as much as you can. Some coaches, I, that's what they do is say, shoot, I think you got to do I, I didn't quite think we needed to do that much, but we'd shoot a three-man, two-ball type situation and get as many shots as you could up in a minute, and then the next guy would go, and you just wrote, keep rotating through. Uh, but I think you have to shoot uh, different shots and get repetition in without the pressure of you know having to feel like I'm competing against this team over here and then you start to try to make the basket as opposed to learning to shoot properly. And again, it's really funny. In, in probably 1980, I designed this thing and I actually sent it to uh, to D.C., uh, to the patent office and tried to find it. And unfortunately, they told me it cost me $10,000 to get a patent. So I couldn't afford it at the time. And, you know, been a young coach and I didn't do it. But what it was was a timer. Of course, now we all have them on our, our wrists where we can set you know, things that set each other off. So you go to minute, it beeps, next guy gets the ball, but it's already on the next minute. 
beeps, next guy gets. So we had this clock uh, that we used that I, I designed, but never went through with it. About three years later, it came out. And it was, I called mine the off-season coach because you could actually just play, you'd run it with batteries, but you'd sit down there. And whether you're doing lane slides, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, whether you're doing shuttle runs, whether you're doing shooting. And so what we do is we'll shoot everybody a minute and rotate through. Uh, and that's, that's and, and coaches now don't have to time. That, I guess that's my point of, of, of that little story was that coaches, I remember when I was a young guy, and I was keeping the time and a stopwatch or something. All of a sudden, guys been, hey, coach, are you sure that minute's not up yet? And I'd be a minute and a half because I'd be trying to work with a kid. And now when you get one of those things, whether it's a, an assistant who's, who's a stat type keeper that, that isn't working with the kids, you know, if you can even have a manager keeping the clock and blowing the whistle so that you don't have to worry about that, but you can actually get around, talk about how kids are stepping into the ball, talk about how they're loading up. Talk about, you know, all the things you need to talk about shooting, not the competitive shooting yet, but there's shooting. And then you can take that in the second half. Like we did a lot of, you know, four guys on a team and, and shooting from different spots. And it, now it became competitive. And hopefully some of the stuff they learned in the first session over the season would sort of meld into the second session and they become better shooters. I love that you're blending both those into a practice. And then in the competitive, was there winners and losers? Was it that type of point where you... Uh... There's consequences either way. I'm not a huge consequence guy, like, but you know, I think that the fact that they just get singled out as having lost for most of these guys by the by the time they get to midseason was up. It, you know, if if you lose one of those things, that's enough. But you know, we'd have them do a down and back or something like that, but nothing that was extreme. Uh, just a quick emphasis and something to acknowledge it. And uh, as you said, if you're creating the right environment, your players don't need that consequence anyways, do they? That's right. No, but you know, it's. It's fun, you know, because the other guys get to get on them a little bit, right? And then it makes it more competitive the next time. It's competition. Yeah. It is fun. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, and then uh, free throws. How do you handle free throws within practice or pre and post practice? Yeah. So free throws, again, you know, we, we try to get kids who need the work. I mean, everybody needs the work, but kids who really need the work uh, to come in and work on free throws before practice uh, or as say after practice. So if we can get them an extra session or two, and then you're shooting a bulk where you're trying to get, you're trying to either change something or, or make a slight adjustment. Um, but the other times before that, like we'll start out early in the year, we'll shoot sets of five. So again, they're getting a feel and a repetition. We shoot 20, shoot sets of five. And then as we narrow down, they may shoot uh, two at a time. And we're trying to make 16. So we're trying to shoot 80%. And then we may go to front ends, what we call front ends. In other words, they're shooting one-on-ones. And now they're shooting 10 front ends and you sat missing front ends. 16 disappears pretty quickly. And we always had a consequence for that. We always, that was always a little bit more serious, but again, guys that didn't make their 16 would get on the line and they'd have to do it down and back. And when they do down and backs, like we do down and backs with a ball, we don't do down and back. And again, I think the more, how much time do you have to have a kid dribble a ball? Well, hardly any, right? And so every place we go that we're doing, if we're going to run, you know, we're, we're either handling with a ball or when we really condition. So we run a drill that almost everybody runs, which is a three versus two, two versus one drill. Okay. And typically what happens is the two guys, you know, three guys come down on two and I, some people have it, the middle guy or the guy who shot or whatever, but he goes back and the two that were on defense go back with him. 
right? Or go two on one going back the other way, right? Well, uh, I didn't like those the two guys that were staying down to become defensive players. I didn't like them standing. So what they have to do is they have to run all the way up to the other end line where there's a cone sprinting and then run all the way back. And now they're in the defensive stance. You think about the extra conditioning because you got to run pretty hard to get up to that cone and back. And days when I wasn't very happy, the cones sort of moved all the way up to the parking lot, you know, and uh, yes. well, now that it was true transition defense and the offense thought, you know, if we really get the ball and go hard, we might even beat these two guys back and get an easy one. So it just made it more competitive. And we were, while they were being more competitive, we, we got the chance to put uh, conditioning into it. And so with every chance we got, if I had a drill that was just a normal drill and I saw kids standing around, I tried to figure out how we could make it a better drill. And, you know, whether you're dribbling a ball or whether you're, you know, uh, sprinting more, we just try to figure out ways to incorporate that stuff. I love that. I mean, to get better at basketball, you obviously obviously have to do a lot of things. And the more you can incorporate them into what you do, the better they're going to be. I love it. Coach, I got to ask, because it's the offseason a little bit for a lot of coaches. And I know I get asked this a lot as a coach educator, working with a lot of coaches at different levels. You referenced it already. You ran multiple offenses within your time. Can you take us through a little bit of the process about how you decided upon an offense for a specific year, for a specific team. Obviously, personnel is a big part of it, but what went beyond that? Well, and so personnel is is key. And and like I was saying earlier, we didn't always have the luxury of getting the personnel that we wanted. And so, but the other thing is, you know, you, you got to watch a lot of basketball. And I'd watch basketball and I'd see what somebody else was doing. I'd say, you know, I like that. And I might talk to them about it if, if there was somebody that we were competing against very often that wasn't a comfortable because they didn't want to tell you their secrets, but I'd watch and I'd try to figure it out. And then I don't think I ever took anything that I didn't twist to our own personnel. So I would take something and I'd take it and just bend it enough. And so, yeah, did I steal it? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I stole the basic piece, but then I took and made it Amherst of that. And so, uh, I think you got to do that. I think I think if you're just living in your own world, you know, you're not you're not going to make the changes you need to make. I mean, now you can watch basketball. I mean, all the time and with synergy and those types of things. My God, I mean, you can watch and you can watch it play ten times over and and actually figure out the secrets. Uh, so there's just there's so many opportunities, and yet and yet again, Hubie Brown, forty years ago taught me something which I believe in to this day is take only what you can teach, right? And so if you don't understand, if you you watch the play and you said like, ah, I like that play, but you don't really understand that play, you're probably not going to teach it well and you're not going to get the intention of that play. You know I mean? So I think whether you're talking to the coach that you saw it from and if he's willing to talk to you, and and I think more people are now because there's more stuff available that there aren't the secrets that we used to have, you know, and uh, or just to sit in a, a room with two assistants and start beating that thing around until you come up with how to teach it, what the purpose of it is, uh, what it is, what what the options are that you're looking for, you know, off it. And then, hey, I know we're going to go further, but let's put in this basic piece. We understand what we're teaching. Let's teach as well. And then and, and and be willing if you're teaching it and realize eh, it doesn't really work. I'll never forget. I went 
Jack Lehman was uh, the coach at UMass. And Jack was great because if you'd buy him lunch, he'd tell you anything, right? And so I, I called him up once. I said, Jack, I said, I've been looking at this old-fashioned offense that I think fits today's offense. It's called the Drake Shuffle. And he said, I know the Drake shuffle inside now. I said, well, can I talk to you about it? He said, let's buy me lunch. So I bought him lunch and we talked about the Drake shuffle. And I spent about uh, 10 minutes every day before practice putting in the Drake shuffle for two weeks. And each day I tried to build on it. And, and you know, something in the end, it didn't work. And I sat with my captains and I said, guys, I, I don't really... This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And so I hate to scrap it. I know we've put a lot of time into it, but what do you think? And they, I could tell they were happy as locks. They said, um, very politely, they're going, yeah, coach, I think we agree with you on that one. So we scrapped the Drake shuffle. And so I tried to make it a new offense, but at least I was out looking. You know, I mean, I've never stopped looking for other things. And you take some, you throw most of the stuff away that you see. Um but when you find that one little thing, I'll tell you one other quick story. So we ran, one of my assistants went out to Westminster Community College out in Utah. And he worked at camp there. And he comes back. He said, Coach, I got to show you something. And I think you're going to really like it. Now, this was back in the 90s, okay? Maybe early 2000s, but I think it was the 90s. And it was a four out, one in. And, and you know, it had all these great little uh, we call them weak screens off it and everything else and back doors. And it was a lot of Princeton stuff in it. And I watched it. And so I said to him, I said, okay, well, listen, this is what I'm going to do. We've, we've beat it up in the, in the office. I'm going to let you put it in. I'm going to let you put it in. Right. So that gave him some ownership. So it was great. So he's putting it in. Well, next thing you know, it works like a charm. Like we're just beating up on so many people and, but it was missing something. Right. There was something missing because when you got through the first couple parts of it, if you didn't score, you were basically sort of four out, one in, and you didn't. We tried some weak side action. We tried the old school stuff to make it more complete, right? And Andrew Olson, who was two-time national player of the year, point guard, he's now the uh, offensive uh, development guy with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Great player for me. Um, California boy. He's out in California. And he calls me up. He says, Coach, I'm so excited to tell you this. I think I found what you're looking for. And I said, give it to me, baby. And so he sends me um, this four out, one in stuff. Um, God, I'm drawing a blank on who the guy. I shouldn't draw a blank on this guy's name because he, he was famous. Calipari and Vance Wahlberg. Vance Wahlberg was, was amazing what he did. John Calipari sort of crowned him as the next visionary in the game and i did the same thing with him i went down i said uh he as luck would have it took a job coaching at umass as an assistant under Derek kellogg uh, and he was there for two years and so i said can i have lunch with you so i went down and we're pushing popcorn around and he's he's like an amazing guy but what he did was he gave me the end and so we we did what we did, which was really good. And then we my one of my players just out there all of a sudden says, Coach, I know your frustration. I found something. I found what you're looking for. Vance Wahlberg. Vance happens to be here. Happy marriage. We ran this stuff and it, you know, we were we were we were great running that stuff. And and we ran it right up until I retired. And and most of my coaches run it. Most of my guys that have left me 
all run parts of it. And uh, so you never stop looking because you don't know where it's going to happen. You don't know where you're going to get that advice from. And if somebody wants to talk to you about something, you should always talk to them because that might be the guy that gives you the one little nugget that you need to turn something around like that. Wow. Great stories. And I love that advice. That's just tremendous. Coach, this has been amazing. I mean, just so great. Your stories, your advice, all the different experiences that you are sharing with us. Thank you. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with coaches that maybe you haven't had a chance yet? Well, so one of the things that was on my notes was that uh, there's a, a little booklet called Coach Like Pop. And uh, it's about Popovich, naturally. But some of the things that he did, even back when he's a Division Three guy. And so, but he's maintained some of it. And the one thing I took from that that I really liked is that uh, when your team is is running, whether it's a scrimmage, a formal scrimmage in your practice, or there's preseason stuff, and you happen to have a set of eyes on them, and you realize, for instance, they're not offensive rebounding at all, then what you do is you change the parameters of the game. Instead of baskets counting one, now if you get an offensive rebound and a put back, it could be two or three. Guess what kids do? They offensive rebound. Guess what the defense does? They start to box out. Double whammy right there, right? Let's say back door. Your kids are afraid to throw the back door past. They're uncomfortable. You're trying to teach them that even is okay. When it's even, you're going to get the back door because one guy's running backwards, one guy's running forward. And so how do you get them to throw it? Well, guess what? If you score on a backdoor pass in my constructed scrimmage, you get three points. Not one, you get three. So all of a sudden it starts to happen. So kids, if you want kids to do things, you know, put a little extra prize on it. And so I thought in the off season, it was great that we did that. And all of a sudden games that was sort of, excuse the expression, grab ass pickup games, all of a sudden we started getting offensive rebounds and put back. All of a sudden guys realized, hey, they're getting three points for that. We got to box them out. So anyway, wonderful story by Pop, uh, wonderful drill type thing to use to put in an incentive that makes your kids change their behaviors in a way that you want to change them. Gold, just tremendous. Thank gold, you. it is gold, absolutely yeah. gold. That's awesome. And uh, of course, your fellow Hall of Famer. As my, yeah, and I can't wait. He owes me because I've been selling his book since <laughs> I bought it. I've been his greatest seller. That's brilliant. Tremendous. Well, Coach, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you again for sharing the game with us. My pleasure. I love it. Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our Basketball Immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm -hmm.